The following announcement has been paid for by Journey into Wrestling. Things seem to be changing around here, and I'm talking podcasts, brother. Journey into Comics Network and no JIW? Where's the wrestling? That's just it, bro. We're making a comeback. JIW has taken over. Butt stuff, podcastrophe, the poor rapport, all these new guys on the scene. We're about to show them what podcasting is all about, Chico. Why don't you tell them when they can hear us, Nate? Every other Wednesday, right here on the Journey into Wrestling Network. Anything less is just too civilized. Following is a Journey to Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. If you're surprised Putin won the election, then you must be surprised today is Tuesday, and that means it's time for another episode of The Poor Report. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me here today. It is episode 29 of the Poor 29 episodes. That's kind of ridiculous. I didn't think 29 episodes was a thing a show I would put together would get to. So it's really exciting to see an epi- a show that's evolved so much over time. So I'm really glad to be here today, and I'm really glad to share what's going on in the world with you fine listeners out there. Now, there's been some big stuff that's happened this week, so much so that to really get to a poor force segment, I had to cut out some stuff that I really wanted to talk about, and it'll actually be a treat today because we are going to have a double poor retour segment. There are two topics that I really need to talk about. There was one that I had set in stone from last week, and then there was one I saw this morning that I had to bring up, so I will get to those before the episode ends, and I think you might be as equally as outraged as I am, so... With that, let's jump right into the poor four. Now, if you're a kid like me who grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, or even in the 80s, you'll remember the classic phrase, I don't want to grow up, I want to be a Toys R Us kid. Well, now it looks like everyone has to grow up because Toys R Us is going to be no more. Filed complete for bankruptcy, they're going to liquidate all their stores. Toys R Us as we know it will cease to exist. Maybe we'll have an online presence, I'm not quite sure. But, yeah, so I'm going to jump into this article here from Fortune Magazine, which is everything about business and money and all that fun stuff. And the article is actually called, Who Killed Joffrey the Giraffe? For me, it was Jeffrey the Giraffe. I have Game of Thrones on the brain, so it's probably Jeffrey. Jeffrey the Giraffe, Inside the Last Days of Toys R Us. It goes, you want a trip to Toys R Us, head... Uh, office of Joffrey, Jeffrey the Draft to feel a visit to a sugar plum toyland. But the mood is black these days inside one Jeffrey Way in Wayne, New Jersey, spiritual home of the cartoon mascot who's been beckoning to kids for generations. Shortly after 3 p.m. on Wednesday, Dave Brandon, chief executive officer of the iconic toy chain, delivered the news that his more than 30,000 U.S. workers have been dreading. We're finished. After 70 years, Toys R Us would close shop, a casualty of Amazon-era retailing and debt-fueled private equity deal-making. I am devastated that we have reached this point, Brandon told a group of about 600 employees. 
I truly believe we did our best, under what turned out to be nearly impossible circumstances, he choked up as he spoke. How did it come to this? The answer is, well, as with most bankruptcies, is slowly and then all at once. In the pre-internet dark age, the company was the unrivaled supermarket of toys, the arbiter of fads and tastes that shaped the entire industry. Its advertising jingle, I don't want to grow up, I'm a Toys R Us kid, is lodged in the brains of millions. But, la in, but by last September, just months before the crucial holiday season, relentless competition from Amazon.com and Walmart combined with more than $5 billion in debt from a 2005 leveraged buyout has finally overwhelmed the chain. With little warning, it filed for bankruptcy under Chapter 11 in the hope Brandon said at the time of emerging better than ever. As the dawn of a new day for the company, you're proclaimed at the Toys R Us in New York's Times Square. Instead, his hopeful plans unraveled at a starting clip. A startling clip. Battles quickly broke out between management and longtime creditors who were owed about $5 billion at the time of the filing. Lenders soon were urged Brandon to shut hundreds of the 800 U.S. stores fast to contain the damage before long vendors were growing wary of about shipping toys to the chains, fearing they may not get paid. The financial powers... Behind Toys R Us, among them KK and KKR and Company, Bain Capital, and Vornado Realty Trust had all but given up by then. After earning more than $470 million in fees and interest payments while taking no dividends, according to regulatory filings, they abandoned hope of flipping Toys R Us back in, onto the stock market in 2013 for the ultimate payoff. The only thing to do, it seemed, was to keep cutting costs and hopefully negotiate easier terms on all that debt. At... One level, the announced liquidation, at least in the U.S., is yet another familiar story about the sorry state of old-school retailing. On another, it's a tale of how private equity has, in many cases, worsened the industry's upheaval. Sports Authority, Gymboree, Pela Shoe Source, Claire's, J. Crew, all these chains and more have struggled to adapt to the fast-chasing landscape after being taken private. With Toys R Us in Chapter 11, the company declined to comment Representatives of the owners also declined to comment or didn't respond to requests for comment. Bondholders have seen the value of their investments plummet. The company's senior unsecured bonds due in 2018 last traded Thursday at 5.2 cents on the dollar, down from 72 cents the week before the bankruptcy filing, according to Trace Bond Price data. Almost from the start, sharp lines were drawn, according to people involved in the bankruptcy process. After the September filing, creditors, including holders of some $3 billion in bankruptcy financing, complained that Toys R Us was being less than forthcoming about its financials, as well as its turnaround strategy. Six months after the filing, the company had no bankruptcy exit plan in place, and lenders were losing faith. The lenders, including J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and Goldman Sachs Group, Inc., jockeyed to provide debtor in possession loans which are first in line to get repaid then a group of hedge funds threatened october to trigger default on those loans until they got a 30 million dollar piece of them others argued over the valuations of various international subsidiaries and assets such as intellectual property and the growing asia business then came black friday the crucial kickoff to its u.s holiday shopping season the christmas run-up turned into a disaster for toys r us brandon later complained that the september bankruptcy had shaken customers confidence but there are other problems. The slow pace of negotiations was unnerving vendors and prompting creditors to urge to more uh, store closings. Amid the dispute, suppliers grew increasingly anxious. Would Toys R Us really emerge from bankruptcy? Firms that insure vendor shipments and provide short-term financing began to back away. As of early February, most had bolted. By then, vendors had learned what Brandon already knew. The holiday season had delivered a blow, with sales plummeting about 15% from the previous year. Brand's initial optimism was fading. In a January 23rd letter to employees, he blamed the holiday shot lowing on the bankruptcy as well as some operational missteps. 
formerly athletic director of the University of Michigan. He resigned amid disapproval from the Board of Regents and student anger over his profit-driven approach to the job. He'd had a successful stint at Domino's Pizza and was recruited by Bain in 2015. Now he desperately needs another win. But beyond picking executives, the private equity owners generally took a hands-off approach. People familiar with the matter says, matters say Toys R Us, meantime, was left to pay more than $400 million a year in interest alone on its debts. By February, some senior most lenders began to push for an outright liquidation, and with that, 70 years of retail history slid toward an ignominious end. Prospects could be buoyed by the group of toy makers who said Wednesday they're looking to make a bid for the company's Canadian business through which they would buy some U.S. locations in the liquidation top rate as a subsidiary. Other potential liquidation bidders have begun to crop up as well. On Thursday at the Toys R Us Express on 33rd Street in Midtown Manhattan, Angela Milligan, 28, and Chance Douglas, 25, were looking for bankruptcy bargains, no liquidation markdowns yet. Other customers wax nostalgic. We grew up with it, said John Park, 39. My kids aren't going to experience a place where they just there's just shelves of toys. So yeah, it looks like it's time to grow up. Our childhood of shopping the toy aisles, finding a toy that you didn't know existed before that very moment, is gone due to the fact that now you can pull up your phone and search on Amazon for any toy under the sun. In the world of internet, not a whole lot can really stand up and take account for what's going on. And really from moving on from that move on to some kind of sad news, tragic news involving a pedestrian bridge in Miami-Dade County. A bridge collapsed over a highway and killed six. Um, According to the NPR article, uh, the number of people who died after a newly placed pedestrian bridge collapsed at Florida International University has risen to six. As crews worked to clear debris and wreckage from the scene in Miami-Dade County, in addition to the six people who were found dead at the site, ten others were transported to area hospitals. Miami-Dade police said an update on the accident Friday morning. Weighing some 950 tons, the pedestrian bridge was still under construction along the edge of Florida International University's campus when it collapsed Thursday afternoon on a major roadway, trapping motorists and passengers underneath. We have multiple victims. The numbers hasn't been determined yet. Miami-Dade County Deputy Mayor Maurice Kemp said at a news conference Thursday afternoon, Initially, authorities said four bodies had been recovered, but later Miami-Dade police spokesman Alvaro Zabaleta said the remains of two more people have been removed from the debris. They're still working away at the concrete, uh, Zabaleta said at the news conference early Friday. Engineers told us last night that it has to be done very carefully, not only because we have to preserve evidence, not only because there might be possible victims under there, and we have to treat it very delicately because the safety of the rescuers, he said. Video footage shows the bridge collapse on a multi-lane highway, crushing vehicles underneath and several people being loaded into ambulances. More than 100 search and rescue workers were using heavy equipment, search dogs, and cranes. Officials said the public to avoid the area and definitely indirected people worried about loved ones to get in touch with the Family Reunification Center at FIU's campus. In a news conference late Thursday evening, FIU President Mark Rosenberg recalled that his university's commitment had just celebrated over the weekend in a milestone in the erection of the bridge, a project which originally began in 2010. The bridge was about collaboration, it was about hope, it was about opportunity, it was about determination, he said. Now we're feeling immense sadness, uncontrollable sadness. All we can do is promise a very thorough investigation, getting to the bottom of this, Rosenberg said, and mourn those who we've lost. Fig Bridge Engineers designed the bridge and said in a statement that it was stunned by the tra- today's tragic collapse and would full- coolly cooperate in the investigation. In our 40-year history, nothing like this has ever happened before, the statement said. 
Member station WRN reported FIG was fined for the South Norfolk Jordan Bridge collapse in 2012 in Virginia. According to the Virginia pilot, the state issued four $7,000 fines for violating the ranges from changing a girder to not performing inspections. MGM Construction was building the Florida Bridge and posted a statement expressing distress over the collapse and referring to a loss of life. Witnesses tell WLRN the structure fell without warning around 1.30 p.m. as a traffic light went red and concrete fell on stopped vehicles. Other motorists rushed out of their cars to help. The main span of the bridge was installed on Saturday. The bridge was not expected to open to foot traffic until early next year. It was intended to boost student safety, spanning a portion of U.S. Highway 41 known as the Tamiami Trail to help people cross from campus to the city of Sweetwater, where the university said thousands of students live. The university is currently on spring break. The National Transportation Safety Board said it would send a GO team to investigate the innocent. In a Tuesday news release, the university touted the rapid installation of the first-of-its-kind pedestrian bridge, which the AP explained allows it to be pre-cavricated, then swung into place before the central support tower was built. The 174-foot and 150-ton section of the bridge was built adjacent to the southwest 8th Street using accelerated bridge construction methods, which are being, adva- which are being advanced at FIU's Accelerated Bridge Construction University Transportation Center. Wow, that's a mouthful. This method of construction reduces potential risk to workers, commuters, and pedestrians, and minimizes traffic interruptions. The main span of the FIU Sweetwater University City Bridge was installed in a few hours with limited disruption to traffic over the weekend. In the Tuesday's release, the university added the FIU Sweetwater University City Bridge, the largest pedestrian bridge moved via self-propelled modular transportation in U.S. history. It was also the first in the world to be constructed entirely of self-cleaning concrete when exposed to sunlight. The titanium dioxide in the concrete captures pollutants, and turns its bright white, reducing maintenance cost. White House Press Secretary Sarah Kobe Sanders said, President Trump is aware of the bridge collapse and will continue to monitor the situation. So it looks like a first-of-its-kind type of bridge construction resulted in a major loss of life for a pedestrian bridge that wasn't even open to the public yet. My heart goes out to the victims and their families, and hopefully this investigation figure out what the root cause is so something like this doesn't happen to the future. And hopefully whoever's responsible, whether it was uh, improperly installed, improperly inspected, something of that nature that caused it, or it could have just been a freak of nature, hopefully everything is, the investigation proves what happened and we're able to move to a resolution in the future. And going from that to everyone's favorite topic, and that involves President Donald J. Trump. So as Trump lashes out at Mueller, Congress at standstill on shielding special counsel. So while some Republicans issued sharp warnings Sunday to President Donald Trump against firing special counsel Robert Mueller, Robert Mueller, sorry, recent efforts to Congress to protect the special counsel have stalled. Republican leaders have said they see no reason to intervene given that they are cons- they considered good cooperation between the White House and the Mueller team. But that was before this weekend. Tensions escalated after Trump's lawyer John Dowd issued a prayer Saturday that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rodenseed would bring an end to Mueller's probe into possible collusion between Trump's campaign and Russia's in Moscow's meddling in the 2016 election. That was followed by unprecedented tweets from the president going after Mueller by name, an approach he's avoided as he sought to appear accommodating in the investigation. The Mueller probe should never have been started, and there was no collusion, there was no crime, he tweeted Saturday. Trump followed this Sunday morning with another tweet more directly condemning Mueller's team. Why does the Mueller team have 13 hardened Democrats, some big crooked Hillary supporters, and zero Republicans, Trump wrote. Another Dem recently added, does anyone think this is fair, and yet theirs is no collusion. No collusion is in all caps. Reacting to the backlash over Trump and Dowd's remarks, White House Special Counsel Ty Cobb emphasized in a statement Sunday night that the president is not considering firing Mueller. 
In response to media speculation related questions being posed to the administration, the White House yet again confirms that the president is not considering or discussing the firing of the special counsel. Republican lawmakers on Sunday sought to warn the president that any action against Mueller would not be tolerated by Congress. If he tried to do that, this would be the beginning of the end of his presidency, said Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina on CNN State of the Union. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona made similar remarks on the show. I mean, taking to my talking to my colleagues all along, it was, you know, once he got af- goes after Mueller, then we'll take action. House Oversight Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy, himself a for- former federal prosecutor, also defended Mueller. I think the pre- president's attorney frankly does him a disservice when he says that, and when he frames the investigation in that way. The South Carolina Republican said on Fox News Sunday, he later added, if you have an innocent client, Mr. Dowd, act like it. Their comments potentially signaled steps Stepped up by action by Congress's lawmakers returned this week to the most serious threat they faced of possible action by the White House against Mueller. But it's unclear whether Congress will make any moves. Lawmakers face a must-pass spending bill amid the other major actions in the Senate on sex trafficking and a war authorization, all before they leave town Friday night for a two-week recess. Concerns about Trump trying to push out Mueller have been brewing since the former FBI director was appointed to the job last May. Cena reported in January that Trump wanted Mueller fired last June, but White House counsel Dan McGahn refused to order the Justice Department to let the special prosecutor go. The New York Times first reported the incident, citing four people who were told of the matter. Trump denied that he moved to have Mueller fired. Senators introduced two bipartisan bills last year aimed at protecting a special counsel from political pressure from the White House. The Special Counsel Integrity Act introduced by Republican Senator Thorne uh, Tillis of North Carolina and Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware would allow a special counsel to be fired only for misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflicts of interest, or other good cause, including violation of DOJ policies. Another bill, the Special Counsel Independence Protection Act, was introduced by Graham and Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and require a federal judge to first sign off on any action to discipline or fire a special counsel. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing in September that looked at the two bills, but the legislation has gone nowhere since then. In January, after the news broke that Trump had fired, or had tried to get Mueller fired, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee urged Trump to let Mueller's investigation work its course and said he was open to, re- to considering the legislation that would shield the special counsel from political pleasure. I just don't think the president, as unpredictable as he is, would fire Mueller. And I think, and I take the view, and I said so maybe not directly to the president, but indirectly to the president, just let this just let this work its course. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley said in an interview with CNN. At around the same time, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he saw no efforts underway at the White House to undermine the Mueller investigation. I don't feel any particular need to reach out to protect someone who seems to need no protection. McConnell told reporters the spokesman for the Majority Leader did not have anything to add Sunday. Grassley said he wanted the two bills to be reconciled and then he would examine any potential constitutional concerns about the separation of powers. The spokesman, uh, Taylor Foy, did not comment directly Sunday on whether the committee would move forward with the legislation, but said, Chairman Grassley has said on many occasions that the special counsel's investigation should be allowed to continue uninterrupted. Coons issued a statement Sunday calling for more senators to support his bill with Tillis. Any attempt by the president to obstruct or remove the special counsel would create a constitutional crisis and present an attack on the core American principle that nobody, including the president of the United States, is above the law. A spokesman for Tillis did not immediately respond to a request for comment Sunday on whether the senator will try to bring more attention around his bill given the events over the weekend in January. 
Tillis spokesman Daniel Kellen said the bill didn't have the support it needed to move through Congress, in part because the president's team was showing signs of cooperation with the special counsel at the time. Tillis and Graham also joined with Grassley last week to call for a second special counsel to investigate alleged abuses by the FBI and the Justice Department's handling of the Trump-Russia investigation up until the appointment of Mueller, a move that backs up complaints made by Trump about the Justice Department. Responding to Trump's tweets this weekend, the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, Senator Dianne Feinstein, tweeted Sunday that the president must cease and desist with these attacks. She was one of several other Democrats who took to Twitter this weekend to defend Mueller, while Republicans were largely silent aside from those who appeared on the Sunday morning shows. A spokesman for House Speaker Paul Ryan did not comment directly on the question of whether Congress should move forward with legislation to safeguard Mueller, but when asked about the president's tweets this weekend, Ashley Strong said, as the speaker has always said, Mr. Mueller and his team should be able to do their job. And I believe I covered this uh, quite a few episodes back now when first got worried about these protections to protect the special counsel in the event Trump didn't like the way it was going or feared for his job and tried to stop it midstream. So looks like that's still very much active, and I guess we'll have to see how this all shakes out. I'm strongly confident that if he did fire Mueller... Even if it came out that there was no collusion, if there was, if the investigation really proved faulty and there was no issues, I think if you tried to, if you file your special prosecutor who's investigating you and the election, it just you're kind of signing the end of your career there. I mean, we saw it with Nixon; it could easily happen again. So that's kind of how my feel on it. And speaking of Trump and firing people, uh, Andrew McCobb's firing um, happened last week, and kind of here's what we know. Andrew G. McCabe, the former FBI deputy director, was fired late Friday night on the eve of his retirement. And here's what we know. Uh, who is Andrew McCabe? McCabe is a 21-year FBI veteran who joined the Bureau out of law school and rose to its number two position in 2016. The deputy director is essentially the FBI's chief operating officer. Uh, why does he matter? He oversaw two of the most politically charged cases in FBI history, the investigation to Hillary Clinton's use of private email server and the investigation of Donald J. Trump's campaign ties to the Russian government. Why was he fired? Mr. McCabe was questioned as a part of a wide-ranging internal inquiry into the FBI's handling of the Clinton investigation and other matters during the internal investigation. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said Mr. McCabe lacked candor, including under oath on multiple occasions. That is a fireable offense, and Mr. Sessions said the career apolitical employees at the FBI and Justice Department agreed that Mr. McCabe should be fired. At issues whether Mr. McCabe was forthcoming with investigators about what Mr. Sessions said was an unauthorized disclosure to the news media. Was he leaking information to damage Mr. Trump? Not as far as anyone can tell. The story at the heart of this case was published in the Wall Street Journal in October 2016, just days before the election as the FBI raced to review newly discovered emails from Mrs. Clinton's servers. Um, the journal revealed a dispute between the FBI and the Justice Department over how to handle a separate Clinton investigation, one into her family's foundation. Mr. McCabe authorized an FBI spokesman and lawyer to speak to the journal to rebut suggestions that he had put the brakes on the investigation. These types of interactions between journalists and government officials, known as background calls, are common in all federal agencies and administrations, as officials try to correct inaccuracies or provide details and nuance before reporters publish information. The journal ultimately reported that while Justice Department officials did not authorize subpoenas, the FBI, in fact, had pressed ahead with the case, a detail that if Anything was damaged to Mrs. Clinton, not Mr. Trump. 
Did the White House fire McCabe? No, as a career civil servant, Mr. McCabe is not a political appointee who can be summarily dismissed by the president. But this is where the situation gets complicated. Mr. Trump has repeatedly used his Twitter account to attack Mr. McCabe months before the firing. He taunted Mr. McCabe's account about his pension. His tweet said, FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe is racing the clock to retire with full benefits. 90 days to go, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Donald Trump really likes his exclamation points and his capital letters. And he goaded Mr. Sessions into taking action against Mr. McCabe. Why didn't AG Sessions replace acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe, a Comey friend who was in charge of Clinton investigation but got dot dot dot? On the eve of Mr. McCabe's fire in the White House Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders called him a bad actor. Taken together, this unusual level of White House commentary created a political backdrop to what should have been an independent government personnel decision. Mr. McCabe's lawyers seized on the evidence of improper influence. The distortion of the process began at the very top with the president's repeated offensive drive-by Twitter attacks on Mr. McCabe, Michael B. Bromwich, a lawyer for Mr. McCabe. Why was he fired so quickly? This is one of the big unknowns. FBI disciplinary matters can drag out for extended periods, and it's not uncommon for officials to retire during that process. This did not happen here, and it's not clear why the workings of the FBI disciplinary office are kept confidential. Mr. McCabe's lawyers said they were given a little time to read and respond to the final report, and were still re receiving new evidence two days before his firing. Why the rush they asked is to make sure that Mr. McCabe was fired. The concerted efforts to accelerate the process in order to beat the ticking clock of his scheduled retirement violates any sense of decency and basic principles of fairness, Mr. Bromwich said. What's the president's beef with Mr. McCabe? Mr. Trump had seized on the fact that Mr. McCabe's wife Jill ran for Virginia State Senate seat as a Democrat and received hundreds of thousands in campaign dollars from a political ally of Mrs. Clinton. He says Mr. McCabe never should have been allowed to oversee the Clinton investigation. He says the campaign donations are proof that a pro-Clinton bias with the FBI explains why Mrs. Clinton was never charged. His tweet said, Problem is that the acting head of the FBI, the person in charge of the Hillary investigation, Andrew McCabe, got $700,000 from H4 wife. Mr. Trump brought up Mr. McCabe's wife on several occasions, including a face-to-face -face meeting in which the president called her a loser. I don't care who you are, you don't call someone's wife to their face a loser. That's just insulting, and I probably would have punched them in the face. Uh, does Mr. Trump's criticism have merit? Yes and no. Mr. McCabe did not begin supervising the Clinton investigation until after his wife had lost the race, and records show that he sought ethics and legal advice inside the FBI before deciding not to recuse himself. But some in the FBI believe he should never have been involved because of his wife's campaign donations. When he ultimately recused himself late in the investigation, only fueled the argument that he should have been stepped aside from the beginning. Mr. Trump's theory of Mr. McCabe as a pro-Clinton partisan, however, is on far shakier ground. Mr. McCabe has identified himself as a lifelong Republican and did not vote in the 2016 election. The newspaper story that Mr. McCabe authorized FBI officials speak about was not a positive one for Mrs. Clinton. And perhaps more importantly, in the months before the election, when the FBI publicly disclosed information about its work on the Clinton investigation, it never revealed the existence and scope of a full-throated investigation of the Trump campaign's Russia ties. What does this possibly have to do with Russia? Like so, so much of the FBI, Mr. McCabe's firing has become inextricably entangled in president's, presidential politics and the investigation by the special counsel, Robert S. Mueller III. Mr. McCabe was one of only a handful of FBI officials involved in the Russia investigation from the first days. He supervised at every step and was involved in the decision to seek a wiretap on Carter Page, a former Trump foreign advisor. The wiretap application was approved by senior Justice Department officials, was reapproved by Mr. Trump's own Justice Department, and was signed by a federal judge based on evidence that Mr. Page was a Russian agent. 
Mr. Trump has declared the wiretap to be improper, however, and points to its evidence of political surveillance by the FBI. Mr. McCabe also worked alongside the FBI Director James B. Comey, who accused Mr. Trump of seeking a loyalty oath and pressing him to end the investigation. Those conversations are now part of an obstruction investigation. Mr. McCabe kept memos on his conversation with Mr. Comey, which could help investigators corroborate Mr. Comey's account. Mr. McCabe argues that Trump administration is trying to discredit him as a potential witness. The real target, Mr. McCabe said, is Mr. Mueller's investigation. Mr. Trump's team seemingly gave credence to that argument last week and when the Daily Beast asked for Mr. Mr. Trump's personal lawyer for a comment on Mr. McCabe's firing, he responded with a call to end the Mueller investigation. From a political standpoint, if Mr. Trump discredits Mr. McCabe, he can raise questions about everything Mr. McCabe has touched, including the Russia investigation. Mr. McCabe's allies have come to his defense. John O. Brennan, with the full extent, said in a tweet, When the full extent of your venality, moral turpitude, and political corruption becomes known, you will take your rightful place as a disgraced demagogue in the dustbin of history. You may scapegoat Andy McCabe, but you will not destroy America. America will triumph over you. Well, he did lie, right? What we know right now is that Mr. Sessions found repeated examples in which Mr. McCabe lacked candor, and career officials, not Trump appointees, recommended dismissal. Mr. Sessions accepted that recommendation. The FBI expects every employee to adhere to the highest standards of honesty, integrity, and accountability. Mr. McCabe denies being untruthful. He says he answered every question honestly, and when he was misunderstood, he reached out to the investigators to correct the record. What's next? You won't be able to assess the allegations on Mr. M- or Mr. McCabe's defense until the Inspector General's report is released. That is expected sometime this spring. Mr. McCabe had sent, had seen it, but cannot discuss it until it's public. When it is released, his lawyer said he has a point-by-point rebuttal to offer. So this is just adding more fuel to the fire in the Mueller investigation, and we'll have to kind of see where this also goes. To me, it seems like Trump is trying to find any angle to discredit this investigation. It only means. The investigation is coming close to something. I know I read something last week that I didn't get to really dive into further to discuss on this episode involving uh, the Mueller subpoenaing subpoenaing Trump's uh, business ties and some some people within the Trump organization. So maybe it's not, sometimes it's like it's not until you back an animal into a corner that it really starts lashing out. And this could be the beginning signs of that with regards to the investigation closing in on Trump and his administration. So it'll be interesting to see how the rest of this shakes out, but that's really all I have for the poor four for this week. And now comes on to two poor tour segments. I really wanted to talk about this week. I felt like it wasn't right to hold one until next week. Cause I'm sure one's going to pop up between now and then. Because episode 30 is just around the corner. And this one I'm sure everyone saw about this. And this was about a dog being forced into an overhead bin for the duration of a flight that resulted in the dog's death. According to the passenger, the flight attendant asked that the animal be placed in the bin instead of under the seat. For those who don't know, when dogs travel, if they're under a certain size and they're put in a proper uh, approved uh, kennel for transport... It can be stowed under your seat as long as it doesn't get in the way of the aisle. The dog's not too big. Otherwise, it has to be stowed under the plane. So on Monday night, a a passenger boarded United Flight 1284 from the Houston Intercontinental to New York LaGuardia with a small dog inside a TSA-compliant carrier. According to the passengers, a flight attendant then demanded that the carrier and animal be placed in the overhead bin for the duration of the flight instead of under the seat, as is common practice. 
A witness wrote on Facebook that the passenger protested but eventually complied. The dog then died sometime during the flight, according to the points guy. Per United's in-cabin pet policy, a pet traveling in cabin must be carried in an approved hard-sided or soft-sided kennel. The kennel must fit completely under the seat in front of the customer and remain there at all times. As such, people traveling with an in-cabin pet cannot be seated in an emergency exit or bulkhead row. This was a tragic accident that should have never occurred as pets should never be placed in the overhead bin. Duh. United States, in a statement, we assume full responsibility for this tragedy and express our deepest condolences to the family and are committed to supporting them. We're thoroughly investigating what occurred to prevent this from ever happening again. United has been in contact with the passengers and offered to pay for an autopsy of the animal, according to CNN. Pet deaths in the cabin are rare, but as previously reported by travelers Rachel Rabkin Peachman, quite a name, dozens of animals died flying in cargo on U.S. airlines in 2016. United has one of the highest incidences of pet deaths. In April 2017, Simon, a three-foot-long, ten-month-old continental giant rabbit, was found dead in the cargo section of a Boeing 67 upon arrival at Chicago O'Hare. The incident comes at a time when airlines are tightening rules on traveling with emotional support animals who are not subject to the same $125 fee as in-cabin pets. On Thursday, United has more pet-related problems when the carrier accidentally sent a dog bound for Kansas to Japan, and a Great Dane that was supposed to go to Japan went to Kansas. An error occurred during the connection in Denver for two pets sent to the wrong destinations. Said United in an apology, We have notified our customers that their pets have arrived safely and will arrange to return the pets to them as soon as possible. We apologize for this mistake and are following up with the vendor kennel where they will be kept overnight to understand what happened. The dog, a 10-year-old German Shepherd named Ergo, will be sent today from Tokyo's Narita Airport to Wichita by private charter. I forgot. I really forgot about the second part about the dog being sent to Japan. How do you make a mistake large enough to send a dog bound for Kansas to Japan? I know there's cargo and sometimes packages get lost, but you're talking about a Great Dane and a German Shepherd getting mixed up and sent to two very different places. And plus, they people who sorry, it's frustrating me. I love dogs. I care for dogs. And I've already vented on emotional support animals and how I think they're ridiculous. But to force a living animal into a small black box that has no airflow that I can imagine, and it's pitch black for the duration of a four-hour flight, is awful. I would, I would refuse. But we're so entrained to be, to be believe that if we disagree with the flight attendant, then the air marshal's going to come there, bash us in the back of the head, and drag us off the plane and call us a terrorist. It's a little ridiculous. But if you force me to do something like that, and my pet dies. I will burn this whole place to the ground and sue you for everything you're worth because that's not okay. That flight attendant should be fired. And even after, I remember reading that she said, oh, I didn't know there was a dog in there. How do you not notice a barking animal in a mesh carrier and still demand that animal would be put in an overhead bin? I've seen those overhead bins. Those old ones are tight and tiny. And if it's a small plane, like one going... To LaGuardia? Like, who knows what that could, state could have been in. It was a little French bulldog. They don't take a lot of space. They're not even that loud. They're pro- it probably would have slept and probably fit fine out there. You were just got so entrenched from your day-in, day-out job that you thought, oh, this is another bag. The bag needs to be overhead and weren't listening to what the passengers were telling you. I don't know if there was a language barrier, but still, look with your freaking eyes and see that there's an animal in there and you 
It's just inhumane. That dog suffered a horrible death, probably a slow one, probably due to lack of oxygen or heat or something. And yeah, that is not okay. And even if you try to make it for it, oh, we'll give you, we'll refund your tickets, or we'll pay for this investigation, or the autopsy. A dog still died, and a French bulldog, if you got it from a breeder, isn't cheap. You know, you pay for that dog, that's still a living animal that you had a bond with. It was 10 months old. You have small children. Those, that child's life is shattered because it saw its dog dead. Like, there's no excuse for this. The same thing with the guy who sent the dog to Japan. I don't know if it's coming back. They eat dog in that part of the world. That is terrifying. I don't know. It's just ridiculous. It pisses me off that that goes by. And I, it's one of the things I hate about air travel. Like, I'll never put my dog on a plane. If I can get him there, I'll drive it. I don't care if it takes 40 hours in a car. I have to drive from Maine to Southern California. I will take that drive over forcing my dog into an uncomfortable and potentially lethal situation on a plane. There's no other way around it for me. I wouldn't trust it. I would feel guilty. It's just not my thing. So that's that. And then moves on to another thing, which involves people just being assholes. A Boy Scout... Uh, Boy Scouts demote... Ah, sorry, I can't seem to talk. Boy Scouts demote Boy Scout with Down syndrome who wanted to be an Eagle Scout. That's just a mouthful of a sentence. Uh, Logan Blythe, 15, has been a Boy Scout with Utah National Parks Council, local Boy Scouts of America affiliate, for the last six years. Blythe, was a Down syndrome, Blythe, who has Down syndrome and autism, became a Cub Scout when he was 8 and joined the Boy Scouts program when he was 11. Blythe earned 22 alternative merit badges and was looking forward to becoming an Eagle Scout. However, the National Boy Scouts of America declined his project proposal and stated his previously earned alternative merit badges would not be recognized. For some kids with disabilities, achieving traditional merit badges is not an option. However, Boy Scouts is an option for children with disabilities to earn alternative merit badges in their application for alternative Eagle Scout rank merit badges. Boy Scouts of America states the Eagle Scout rank may be achieved by a Boy Scout, Varsity Scout, or Qualified Venture or Ski Scout who had a physical or mental disability by qualifying for alternative merit badges. In order to be an e- become an Eagle Scout, Blythe had to do a community service project. Logan's mom and myself came up with a service project Logan can do. Newborn kits for the local hospital and distributing them. So Logan and I submitted this to the local Boy Scout leaders for their approval. Logan's dad, Chad Blythe, told the Mighty. According to Chad, the local chapter approved the project and even took a picture with Logan in his full uniform. The next day, after the local leaders contacted Boy Scouts National Office for its approval, they were instructed to suspend Logan's Eagle project. After a two-hour-long meeting with the local chapter, Logan's merit badges were considered void and he was reduced to Cub Scout rank. The Cub Scout program is for children ages 10 and under. Logan is 15 years old. Following the decision, Chad received a text message saying, We should have never said that you were approved. Logan, who needs modification and support, signed up for the alternative merit badges which were approved by his local Boy Scouts program, Chad said. They did so because they felt it was the right thing to do. The local leaders made modifications to the retirement so he could earn them. Logan's local scout leaders were more than willing to work with Logan to earn his alternative merit badges and said he deserved them. We were led to believe everything was fine and Logan could get through. He could earn merit badges, advance and rank as long as he did what he needed to do, Chad said. When he asked how Logan was taking his demotion, his dad said he was saddened by it. Since this occurred, we now struggle to get him to wear his uniform. That was not the case before. Logan already assembled 25 kits for newborns at a local hospital in Payson, Utah. We had planned on Logan even distributing some, Chad added. The Mighty reached out to the local Utah National Parks Council, who gave the following statement. 
We are moved by this young man's desire to achieve the rank of Evil Scout. We work closely with this young man and his family to attain the benefits of the scouting program and are committed to continue to do so. The Eagle Scout Award is a national award. Final decisions regarding the Eagle requirements are made at the national BSA level. Since its founding in 1910, the Boy Scouts of America have served youth members with physical, mental, and emotional disabilities. Through the Disability Awareness Committee, the BSA enables youth to achieve the rank of Eagle Scout. The Utah National Parks Council stands ready to assist all Scouts and their families who, despite extraordinary circumstances, have the desire to achieve the rank of Eagle Scout. The Mighty reached out to the National Boy Scouts of America and is yet to hear back. That's also something that's just awful. That's something that the the local council should have looked into from the beginning. If they didn't think it was going to work out, they, they should have been committed and should have followed up and talked to the Nationals. And if there was any issue, they should have made it aware right away. They shouldn't have let him get his hopes up and do all this work and earn the badges that he felt he earned. And just because a national council is being a stickler for rules, it's ridiculous and it's sad. And the fact that they had to text to say, we shouldn't have approved it. Like, that's that's just so sad. Like, I don't know. It just blows my mind how heartless some people can be. I understand there are rules for a reason. The Eagle Scout is a very distinguished award. But there should have been a communication between the local council and the national organization for how these situations should go. There are a lot more kids with disabilities these days than there were 20, 30 years ago, and they should have contingencies in place for this, and kids that are able to do so should be able to achieve the merit badges and achieve Eagle Scout standing. So, yeah, so two really downer, upsetting poor torts this week. Sorry to bring you guys down like this, but it's really frustrating to see how some people can just ruin the lives of others for a stickler about certain rules without even really following through on them. So yeah, another episode down, 29, 30s next week, that's going to be exciting. Sorry, it's going to take me a little shake off the, the these last two Porator pieces. And hopefully next week we'll have some more uplifting news. I don't know what's coming next week. It's going to be the week leading up to Easter, so that'll be fun. I have family coming in this weekend, so I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, not a whole lot else going on for me. Probably some updates coming in the future. But yeah, just thank you guys for listening. Uh, be sure to check out our Patreon for our Road to Infinity War. I know if you guys saw that last trailer, it is fantastic and all hype, and I am ecstatic to see it glad it was moved up a week to the 27th of april so about a month from now which is great can't wait i'm probably not gonna be able to probably not gonna pre-order my tickets i'm gonna try and use movie pass which has been nice even if i don't use it every week it's still a lot better because even if i saw one movie a month it's still cheaper than buying the regular ticket so yeah definitely Check out our Patreon. It's $3 a month for for the access to the Road to Infinity War. It's a dollar a month for early access. We're going to be working on other exclusive content coming in the future, including exclusive podcasts in general, which is great. Another way to get extra content. It really gives bang for that $3. And maybe we'll, we'll add more tiers and have more stuff coming for you in the future. And that's at patreon.com slash journeyintocomics. You can also check out our regular network page at journeyintocomics.com where you can see all the other shows. Anything you like under the sun, there's probably a show on our network that covers it. 
And if not, those shows are on our Patreon in the near future. So, and like always, if you have any questions or comments or things to say to me directly or things you want me to talk about on the show, feel free to reach out to me on my social media at The Poor Rapport on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, or you can always reach out to the other, to the Journey into Comics Network page and they will get it back to me. So yeah, thank you as always for listening. I will see you next week on episode 30. Or I guess talk to you next week on episode 30 because this is not a video-led podcast. So yeah, have a great week, everyone. I will talk to you soon.